O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and olive oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. This is the word of the Lord. Rabbi Gunter Plaut says of this brief work, we know virtually nothing about this prophet. We know what his name means. The first two letters in Hebrew are a shortened form of the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush. The Eye, Asher Eye, I am who I am, shortened only of consonants to Yahweh, The older name the Hebrews had for God, El or Elohim, and so in Hebrew, the prophet's name is Yahel, Yahel. In English, it became Joel. Yahweh is El. The Lord is God, is what it means. Scholars have looked to see if there are any clues as to exactly when this work might have been done, and they noticed that it seems to bear the images of a time after the Babylonian captivity, and that the prophet mentions the walls being around the city again. So that means if the walls have been completed under the leadership of Nehemiah, then the temple has also been rebuilt under the leadership of Ezra. The 50 years have passed in Babylon. The Persians have overrun them and let the Jews go home. The Jews have gone home and have found that all of their olive trees have been commandeered by someone else. All the best watering holes, the best grazing lands, their vineyards controlled by someone else. The temple still devastated the royal palace. No more. The walls tumbled down. But they've all been repaired. And then, probably a century after, comes this horde of locusts eating everything in sight. And we have the work of this prophet. I'm going to use four imperative verbs from the second chapter. Imperative verbs, you remember, a commandment or strong request. So this Joel says that God told him there are four things these people who've come home to Judah are supposed to be doing. Verse 1. Blow the shofar in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Dr. Eugene Peterson, a Presbyterian who has translated the Bible in a book he calls The Message, says that Joel is trying to say that for one generation the Lord comes in the approaching armies of the Babylonians, And in another generation, it may be a swarm of locusts. But what we need to know is that every day we deal with the Lord. Every day we deal with the Lord. He is unhappy and visits upon us the consequences of our irresponsible acts. Or he is pleased and is so pleased to bless us. 
Dr. Fred Craddock, in writing about those apocryphal passages in the Bible, said some are always trying to measure when the end time will come. We've been foolishly doing that now for 2,000 years for Christians and even longer for Jews when the truth is that whether first he comes again or we go tomorrow, we all deal with the Lord. Gene Peterson says, well, no, Dr. Craddock, it's today. Today and every day we deal with the Lord. You university students may like this uh, illustration. I was reading recently about a study done in Israel with three-year-old children. These behavioral scientists had asked permission of parents if they could conduct a little experiment with three-year-old children, half of them little boys and the other half little girls, that one child at a time would be taken into a room and would be given six packets of stickers. Now, we have three little granddaughters, and we know they play with stickers like that. These little stickers may be cartoon characters, images of characters they've seen on television, maybe something that they've read from a book, fairy tales, and so on. Each three-year-old child given six packets. And then the behavioral scientist asked this child, is there any chance you would be willing to share some of your stickers with someone whom you do not know? You can keep them all, or you may give some to a little boy who has none. The largest percent gave one set to someone they would never know. But the second largest group gave none. And the number is giving two, three, four, five, six, fewer yet. They found equal numbers of boys and girls. Some of the girls generous, some not generous. Some boys generous, some not generous. Two children out of 136 gave them all. And one of these three-year-olds was asked, why are you giving all six packets to someone you do not know? And this little fellow said, that's the way you become happy. The Wall Street Journal carried this story under the title, The Selfish Gene. The Selfish Gene. We all battled that one in a struggle to become unselfish. The gene that says, take care of you, and the gene that says, as long as you're scratching and clawing for you, you're losing. And when you start putting God in the center and the other in the center, life is going to be what God promised. Number two, imperative verb. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, we know that in biblical times, when people wanted to show others that they were undone by some tragic event, they tore their clothes. Tore their clothes, often removing them then and putting on something scratchy and sticky called sackcloth and scooping up cold ashes and putting them up on their head to show they just felt lower than dirt. But this prophet said, more than tearing your clothes, 
tear your hearts. It starts in the heart. I heard a great preacher say many years ago, the longest distance we ever travel is from our brains to our hearts. Things that we know never get translated to the will to do, to the will to do. There's a new movie out called The Man Nobody Knew. It's biographical. It's a story of the man who was head of our CIA during the Richard Nixon years and on through the Gerald Ford years. But this man became a subversive for our country during World War II. His name was Colby, you may remember. Mr. Colby worked undercover during World War II, and when the war was over and we had this huge threat of communism looming over the world, we became more and more involved in espionage. He was a CIA agent for all of his adult lifetime, eventually being head of the CIA for that eight-year period. Now, a movie has been made about his life, the man nobody knew. But one of his sons, Carl, was asked about his father. There were three children, two boys and a daughter. The daughter fought epilepsy all of her growing up years, and the father was gone almost all the time. And Carl said this, I don't believe my father ever loved anybody. I never heard him say anything heartfelt. His word. Heartfelt. I read that some time ago, and I knew that was going to fit some Sunday morning, and here it is. Don't tear your clothes. Rend your hearts. Say things that are heartfelt. Do not die. And those who counted on you say, I don't believe she, he ever really loved anybody or anything. Number three, even now, the prophet says, turn to Yahweh, your Elohim, the Lord, your God. Return to the Lord. I told you this word from Hebrew, shub. In Christianity, we talk about repentance, repentance, and we usually mean being really sorry or sad about something we've done or failed to do. In Hebrew, the word that can be translated repentance has a root word meaning to turn or return. It's not enough to be sorry. One needs to come back. Come back to the one who created you, who breathed into you God's own ruach, God's own breath, who had something in mind for you but didn't require it, ask it of you. You didn't give, I didn't give of myself every time I could have. How could we have done this better? How? What did we do we ought not to have done? What might we have done that we never got done? Turn and return to him. Dr. Howard Thurman, one of the great African-Americans of the last century, he was born in 1899 down in Florida, a time when African-Americans in the Deep South had a hard time. 
But his mother and father knew the value of education, and they just insisted that he be there every day and every night getting his homework done, becoming a good student. He then was packed off to Morehouse College. One of his classmates was a fellow named Martin Luther King, eventually Martin Luther King Sr., not the junior. A classmate, they went on and graduated from Morehouse, and Howard Thurman went on from there north up into New York to Colgate and Rochester uh, Seminary, received his Master of Divinity degree, and on to Haverford College where he received his Ph.D. We United Methodists recognized what an outstanding man he was and asked him to be dean of our chapel at our Boston University. 1953, he was the first African-American tenured as dean of a chapel at a predominantly white university in this country. We Methodists did that. He said many powerful things, wrote many powerful things. Recently, I was reading one of his stories. He said when he was a boy, he got home from school one day. It was late spring, not so long before school was out. His mother had a little bucket. She said, if you could find enough ripe dewberries to fill this little bucket, I'd make us a cobbler for supper. My mother did that for us. She had a quart jar. She said, if you can get me a quart of new dewberries, I can make us a cobbler for supper. And we would go looking for berry vines. Well, that's what Howard did. He took that little bucket and he started hunting. And he found a few. His mother told him, now ripe, they must be ripe. Only the ripe ones. So he said, I went a little farther and a little farther and a little farther. And suddenly, it was dark. And I'd gone into the edge of a big woods. And I didn't know where my house was. Suddenly I was panic-stricken because a dark cloud had come over. There was a terrible peal of thunder, and then the lightning flashed. I huddled against one of those big trees. And then in my deepest heart, I could hear my mother saying, When you're lost, be very still. Be very still. Look for light. And when you see light, look for something that looks familiar. Move toward it. Look for something else that looks familiar and move toward it. He said, I calmed my heart, leaning against that big tree, and suddenly the lightning flashed again. I looked and I saw something that looked familiar. And I started moving toward it. It got dark again. I stopped. And then the lightning flashed, and I could see. I moved farther, and it got dark, and I stopped. And the lightning flashed, and I went farther, and then I could see my house. When it's dark, and it's stormy, and you feel lost, be still. Look and listen and move toward the familiar. Move toward the familiar. Turn. Return. And then these wonderful words we read earlier. 
after these imperatives. Blow the shofar, the ram's horn, on my holy mountain and tell them that I'm coming. The day of the Lord is near. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Turn, return to the Lord. Now we have this. Rejoice. Be glad. After these locusts, God is sending rain for you. And all your threshing floors will be filled with grain and all your vats filled with wine and olive oil again. God wants good to come to you. He wants good to come to you. Receive his blessing. But this is not the prosperity gospel you hear about sometimes on 60 Minutes or somewhere else because this gospel says... God not only wants good to come to you, he wants it to come to every child of his, and he counts on us to help it in whatever ways we can. Dr. Fred Craddock was invited to give a lecture series in Winnipeg, Canada. He said he'd lived all his life in the South, and when this professor invited him to come, he said this lectureship was in late October. He was part of our faculty at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He said, what, what's the weather like in Winnipeg in October? He said, well, it changes from day to day. You might want to bring your top coat. He said, I flew into Winnipeg. I gave the first lecture that night. This professor drove me to the place they had reserved for me to stay. Next morning, my phone rang. This fellow said, if you looked outside the window, said, no. He said, look outside. I looked outside. It had been snowing all night. It must have been 18 inches of snow. Now, Dr. Craddock's about 5'4". That would have been nearly waist high on him. And I asked, he said, well, what do we do now? And this fellow said, well, we've canceled classes. We've canceled the lectures. You could go home except no planes are flying. Now, the place where we've put you up has no food service. But I think if you can get out the door, turn to your right, turn right at the corner, turn right again at the next corner, you'll find a little diner that never closes. He said, I put on everything I had, and I went out in that snow, and I made one right turn, and I made another right turn, and there was the diner. And as I tried to squeeze in, I could tell that every square foot was filled with somebody. But one group of people sitting in a booth saw me and simply motioned. They all scrunched up that much more to let me sit down. Here came a guy with an apron wrapped around him that looked like it had been worn at least a week or more. And he said, can I help you? And I said, I'd like to see a menu. The man said, we have soup. Dr. Craddock said, I don't usually eat soup for breakfast. And the man said, we have soup. And he said, that's what I wanted, soup. And so he brought this bowl of soup, and it was gray, the color of a mouse, it looked like to me. And I was sitting there trying to decide whether I really wanted soup or not. When a woman came through the door and the cold wind rushed in behind her, 
I was close enough to the counter at our booth, I heard her ask for a drink of water. And this fellow with the apron wrapped around him said, no water unless you're a paying customer. She said, may I warm my hands? And he said, if you're not a paying customer, get out. And she started toward the door. And Dr. Craddock said, suddenly, everybody in the place stood up and started toward the door. And the fellow said, wait, sit down. I will give her some soup. Dr. Craddock said, I looked at the people in my booth and said, who is she? He said, we don't know. But if she ain't eating, we ain't eating. He said, the men gave her a bowl of that gray soup, and she started eating. And I took a bite of mine. I like this soup. I've tasted this before. It tastes like bread and wine. 